You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I'm having one of my usual discussions with Dr. Brian Keating, almost winner of the Nobel Prize, and we're doing a four or five part series on how the universe began. This is not one of those episodes, but we talk about a variety of fun, interesting topics. Hang on and enjoy the ride. Thanks. Yeah, well, speaking of the market, um, do you know who Michael Saylor is? No. He's this MicroStrategy uh, CEO who's getting all this attention because he's borrowing. Oh, yeah, Bitcoin. Bitcoin, yeah. So he's borrowing from the Fed. And then he and Elon Musk got into this Twitter you know, conversation last week over Christmas. You know, He's basically saying to Elon, you should take all this money you're getting from the government, you know, buying your debt, and just put that into Bitcoin. So Michael agreed to come on my show. He's actually an MIT aerospace engineer, you know, graduate. If I remember the story correctly, because now I, I thought you were spelling it S-A-I-L-O-R, but it's S-A-Y-L-O-R. Right. If I remember the story correctly, I think MicroStrategy, I think he, it took, he, he basically like interviewed hundreds of potential clients and then used that to start MicroStrategy to figure mm -hmm. out exactly the services to offer. If I remember the story correctly or if, or if it was MicroStrategy, I'm pretty sure it was. He's interesting because he has this alternative college you know, like uh, Peter Thiel was interested in, but it's called Sailor Academy. But it's actually accredited through the Southern New Hampshire University. Wow. It's mostly STEM, technology stuff, computer stuff. But I'm curious to ask him, you know, about, you know, is, is there a way, what I've been thinking about lately is, because physics is drastically undersupported because it doesn't produce as much technology as technology does. And I always say to you, like, can you name a company, James, that came out of a university, like a, an app or a software company or Google? Like, did any of these come out of universities? Well, Google did. Yeah. And certainly the, Snapchat came out of the same university, you know, Stanford. But uh, can you name a cell phone or a new microcomputer that's, that's new in the last 20 years that came out of a university? No, they're no. not making technology. And they have patents, but it's different. It's not in the tech space. It's much, my point is, it's much harder to make hardware than software. And sort of theoretical physics is more like software. So there's a lot more theories of everything than experiments of everything. Right. You know, we've been talking about all these alternative theories, but why aren't there all these alternative experiments? So I kind of feel like there's a arbitrage opportunity within physics to have some way of you know, keeping these theorists who are like coders, 
you know, they they can produce code without documenting it, you know, and, and accrue all this technical debt, you know, that they have to go back and and re, redo. But how do you like make physics itself like self-sustaining without needing, you know, Jim Simons or a National Science Foundation? And so I had this idea that you know what physics really needs is like Y Combinator, like a Y Combinator where you get on all these people like Eric Weinstein. Max Tegmark, you know, the two of them are coming on my show, by the way, into the impossible tomorrow morning for a live chat. You know, they're brilliant. They've got all these alternative ideas. But how do you know as an experimentalist like me, where should I point my telescope? Like, I, how do I go about down-selecting and a sieve and assaying what I should do? Well, what if there is no practical use? It should be without practical use, yeah. I mean, a lot of these Nobel Prize winners I've had on there, like, you should study the most useless things possible. Well, even like even like studying computer science. I mean, I went undergrad computer science and then grad school for a few years, mm-hmm. but there was no, despite spending all these years programming, and I was programming every day, there was no real use for me in the market. Like I had to take, literally I had to take remedial classes in programming once I put in my first 10,000 hours programming <laughs> because there was no, like, like in the real world, people weren't using Lisp or even, even, you know, Pascal, yeah. Yeah, they were, but even like, you know, I did some stuff in C when I was in school, but it was still very academic. It didn't tie into real world systems. Like uh, it didn't use Oracle. You know, mm-hmm. I was making, like, I made a chess program in C. When I, once I got into the real world, I had to learn how to use C and Oracle and, you know, functionality built into the Macintosh because everybody needed to have like, you know, connect to the cafeteria menu or whatever. I had to do all these things that there was no, there was no class on, you know, work. Yeah. You know, actual work use of computers. So I'm like interested in, yeah, can you, is there some way to tokenize or, you know, could we use Bitcoin? Yeah. Is there some way to make self-sustaining for something that's useful? Like I'm not asking all these theoretical physicists to go out and create 7G, you know, like cell service. I'm just saying, you know, take data that exists or look at the capabilities of existing instruments. If you have some new idea for how the universe began, as I know you do, how do you convince me with my telescope that it's worth spending? You know, it could cost some of these telescopes like that already exist, let alone the ones that are coming up. They cost $50,000 to $100,000 a night. How much did uh, Bicep 2 cost? That was that was yours. It's about 10 million total. So over three years, you know, of observations. You're talking tens of thousands a day. Is it so expensive because it's so finely tuned as to detect gravitational waves? Well, no, almost any tele... Like I was speaking about the Keck telescope, you know, for the Hubble Space Telescope, I think, let's say you put in a proposal, the equivalent that you have to kind of declare on your university tax form, like of how much you actually got so that they can take overhead is like $50,000 per hour of the mm. Hubble Space Telescope. That's how they, and that's like after, you know, 30 years in orbit. It's not, it's, I think they paid it off by now. The bank, you know, they tore up the mortgage, but you know, that's how they categorize it. But these big telescopes in Hawaii that are 10 meters across, you know, almost 40 feet across, these instruments are, you know, tens of thousands a night. And, you know, you could get a night, pay for it, and then the rain comes and you don't get to see anything. And you have to just apply again next year and hope you get another $50,000. Wow. So, yes. But it, it seems like, you know, you answered your question a little bit earlier, which is that when you study physics or any of these hard sciences, and I'm not counting computer science with that, I'm counting physics, chemistry, biology. When you study physics, you learn a way of thinking 
a disciplined way of thinking so that, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's why hedge funds want to hire physicists. That's why banks want to hire theoreticians. Like mm. banks, banks for 30 years have wanted to hire theory people. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Jim Simons, as you know, was only hiring PhDs in math and physics and astronomy for a long time. I know because he, <laughs> he, he wanted to interview me then because he knew I went to graduate school, but then he said, what's your PhD? And I'm like, oh, well, I, I got thrown out of graduate school. <laughs> the interview was off. He, he, he said, I'm sorry to say this, but uh, I, we only hire PhDs. So he, he sticks to a discipline. Yeah. Yeah. That's his, that's his um, rubric sort of on how he you know, makes these decisions. And, and, you know, I can't blame him. He's been, he's been somewhat successful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's been good. And then other news, I've been working on the Galileo book that remember, I wanted to make this audio book of Galileo Yeah. Uh, that doesn't exist. So Galileo's dialogue, which I think is the most important, you know, book ever written in human history. And so does a guy by the name of Albert Einstein wrote the foreword to it and basically calls it, you know, one of the most important books. More important than even like Darwin or Isaac Newton because Galileo wrote it in almost like a novel. I mean, it's it's three characters. They're in mm. discourse on this lagoon in Venice. It's it, You feel the atmosphere of it. It's the first book in the modern age written like this. We have extra commentary, I forget. Yeah, so, so yeah, you were talking about, you know, I should have like, because no physicist, like all these people that have translated it, they're just like Italian, you know, or historians or whatever. They're not physicists. And so no physicist, no astronomer has ever like translated his work or interpreted his result. Like, you know what you should do? You should put the text on genius.com and allow people to annotate it. Like what he might mean by each sentence. So on genius.com, like I could put the Bible and people could highlight different passages and they mean this, they mean this. It's, it was originally rapgenius.com and it was used to interpret rap lyrics, oh. but it expanded out to everything. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so this translation is owned by the University of California. So I, don't, I couldn't put the ebook on there. Uh, would it work for audio? I don't know, but you know, you can't, you, you, you can't do something until they tell you. <laughs> like who's gonna see it on genius.com and who's gonna complain? Yeah, well, no, no, there's no e-version of it. I mean, I, I can't get the... I couldn't even get it to like, you know, post it there even without permission and, and get forgiveness, which I would never do. But like, in other words, the ebook doesn't exist. Let's say you got the text. Why would you never, because you could just hand it to somebody, you know, some farm of typers. So, so why wouldn't you assume permission and then ask for forgiveness <laughs> later? Is that like a ethical thing? Oh yeah. In, in academia, it would be, it would be a no, no. I mean, this guy was a, a professor at University of California you know, he huh. presumably has an estate that would be a little bit upset about doing that. But there is an English version from 1661, uh, which is, I tried to read it, and there is actually an ebook version of it. But you know what's so annoying about it is that they digitized it and they must have used like OCR. <clears throat> and so back then, I don't know if you know this, they used to save money. And actually, they could save money by printing only like capital letters, no lowercase letters. But the other thing they do is they use the letter lowercase f for both lowercase f and the letter s, because they kind of look similar. So, mm -hmm. like, it'll be like, you know, for instance, and it'll be like, for is, you know, <laughs> for ifs, the, it's so, and it's so distracting because it's not like the letter s is used very so you, much. You could translate to English that version. I know, but it's it's literally just the raw text, James. Just just a TXT file is a 1.5 megabytes. <laughs> oh my gosh! It's just like how, how many years? Did, how many years did Galileo take to write that? He wrote it over nine years, eight or nine years. I don't think I could do anything over eight or nine years. 
even raise my kids. I mean, I, I outsource that, you know, after yeah. two years. Well, they that's get, why they I get two good years if that podcast doing well. Uh, podcast is doing well, yeah. Into the Impossible, it's chugging along. We got a bunch more Nobel Prize winners. Oh, that's what I want to tell you. Yeah, so I'm working with Tucker. Uh, oh, yeah, how's that going? It's going good. I've been talking to him about the Nobel Prize. Think like a Nobel Prize winner, the title that you picked out, that won the A-B testing between me and Tucker. Tucker was just like, damn it, I freaking hate James. I hate to admit he's right. It's better than <laughs> lessons from leading laureates. It's better than a brainiac says, do this. So yeah, so it's going to be <laughs> think like a Nobel Prize winner. I've got an editor. He's taking notes on all the episodes with Nobel Prize winners. The only thing is, like, I'm I'm really having trouble. I want to show, you know, uh, a couple of female laureates, and it's like almost impossible. I mean, either they don't do podcasts, so they won't come on my show just out of principle, or they don't respond. Why don't they come on? Wait, why not out of principle? <laughs> One told me uh, that she went on a bunch of podcasts when she won the Nobel Prize. She said everything she needs to say. Uh, it's not a great, you know, match for her. She was very cordial about it. Uh, but she did, she declined to do it. Another one said she's never done a podcast and her policy is not to do one. And there's only, by the way, there's only two women that are alive that won the Nobel Prize in physics. So, so that's that's the problem, really. It's not that, it's just, who. what is the reason? Is there sexism in the committee or is it just there isn't a lot of women who studied STEM or what? what's the story? Oh, I think it's a lot of both. I mean, they've historically been incredibly sexist, you know, denying it to women that clearly deserved it. Even when they could, remember, they can give the Nobel Prize to up to three people, as I point out, in losing the Nobel Prize. And and yet on many occasions, you know, for example, the woman who discovered pulsars, uh, they gave it to her PhD advisor and another British physicist, and they didn't give it to her, and that was it. So in other words, she did, could have won it. Does anyone ever say, like, did her advisor ever say, listen, I'm refusing it because this girl deserves it? Well, I'm hoping to have her on. Her name's Lady uh, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, and she'd be a good a, a good person to have on uh, just to comment on that. But she actually makes a joke. She's like, I'm glad I didn't win the Nobel Prize uh, because it's all people ask me about. And so I'd, I'd lose you know, <laughs> the opportunity to talk about how what's wrong with the Nobel Prize. But in reality, um, I think she felt she was too young. She was a graduate student. Uh, before, you know, she didn't drop out. She didn't take, take the all teacher method, so she actually could have gotten a job with Jim Simons, uh, and she still can. She's uh, very she much could, yeah. with us, and so she decided, uh, you know, that she wasn't going to pursue. But she felt like because she was only a student, and the idea to go out and look for it uh, was not hers, perhaps, and she didn't arrange the funding that she actually agreed with it. I feel like that's kind of I joke in the book, kind of like the Stockholm syndrome, like pun intended, because that's where they give out the Nobel Prize. She's basically kind of rationalized to herself that this thing is shouldn't have been given to her because she was a graduate student. And I point out in my book, many graduate students have won, including Frank Wilczek, who I've had on the show twice now uh, for his wonderful new book. He's at MIT. Could you imagine being a grad student and getting the Nobel Prize, and then and then your PhD oh. committee rejects your PhD? <laughs> <laughs> like, does That's that happen? Right. Well, no. So no graduate students ever won it. Uh, but what the, what happens is they do the work and then it's awarded, you know, when they're 80 years old for work they did when they were a graduate student. Ah, I see. Okay. Which actually was kind of crazy. I think this could be like, you ever hear these stories about, well, when they invent 
like the cure for cancer and Dave Asprey invents, you know, whatever. He lives to be, you know, 180 or 380, whatever. That, um, you know, the only thing you'll have to worry, you won't have to worry about dying of natural causes. You won't have to die, worry about dying of cancer or, you know, or herpes, you know, and so, or whatever. You won't have to worry about dying of any naturally occurring disease. But you'll still be vulnerable to accidents. I mean, they're not going to make something that uh, you know, absolve, ab- uh, obliviates, you know, you from being uh, killed in a plane crash, for example. That's why I just stay in this room. Exactly. So that means that people be terrified, right? So the richer you are, the more access you'll have to these medicines and pills to t- take that cause you to never die of natural causes, and the more insane you'll be about never going out. Now, imagine this guy. So one of the guys, we talked last time about the imposter syndrome, which has become a big theme of the upcoming book, Think Like a Nobel Prize winner, and is a big theme on my podcast, Into the Impossible, which is, you know, whether or not uh, a person like, you know, Frank Wilczek or, you know, this guy Ray Weiss that I had on today whether or not they experience the imposter syndrome. And we said, actually, a lot of them do. But this guy, Frank Wilczek in MIT, he said, no, I I don't experience. I asked him, do you ever experience the imposter? He said, no, quite the opposite. Like, he basically felt like he deserved the Nobel Prize much earlier, but he had to wait for other people to get it before him, essentially. And I just thought about that in the context of the never-dying pill that one of my sons wants to invent. Like, imagine if you knew that you're going to win the Nobel Prize. People told you from age 22 that your PhD thesis is guaranteed to win a Nobel Prize, but it has to go either for confirmation of it using an experiment or it has to go to an older theorist first because they set the the kind of the foundation. Like, in other words, he discovered this property of quarks that you can never see an isolated bare quark. Like, we can see an electron by itself and we can see a proton by itself, but we can't see a quark. They always come in pairs or triplets. And the more you try to split them apart, eventually it's like breaking a magnet in half. When you break a magnet in half, you don't get a North Pole and a South Pole. You get two North Poles and two South Poles. In this case, he knew that he had to wait for the guy who discovered quarks to get a Nobel Prize and some other people to get a Nobel Prize before he could get it. And that took, you know, know, let's say 25 years. And then it was like five to seven years later. But can you imagine the agony of waiting 31 years knowing that you're going to win a Nobel Prize, but what if you die? Remember, one of the postulates that I rail against in losing the Nobel Prize is the prohibition against giving it posthumously. I think that's cruel. I think it denies people uh, of their rightful share in a creation, invention, discovery that they made merely because maybe they died a day before the awards were announced. And so... Yeah, you know, I don't know if I would care if I won it after I died. It's like, what's it worth then? No, but wouldn't you be neurotic? It's like it's like Woody Allen says. Yeah, well, Woody Allen's neurotic. Woody Allen right, says, right, "Yeah, I don't hope to, you know, you know spend eternity in, in the minds of my countrymen. I want to spend it in, in my, my apartment." apartment. <laughs> when you when you realized on your project that you had there was this critical error, and now you you literally watched in front of you the Nobel Prize disappearing. Did you get really, really upset? Were you angry? Were you burnt out? Um, it's it, it's mixed for me because I knew like the day before we announced it when we still thought it was, you know, likely to be correct, although I had doubts um, and many people had doubts. Like the night before is when I came up with the idea for my book, like losing the Nobel Prize and the title, that title, because I knew one of two things would happen. Either we were wrong and no one would win a Nobel Prize or we were right, and the kind of forces that had conspired to remove me from the leadership of the project that I had created, 
that, that as I describe in, the, in my memoir, they would win the Nobel Prize by design. I mean, I was not invited to this press conference at Harvard that was held in front of Nobel Prize winners. Like, were you just angry when that was happening? Like, were you like cursing people? And I was very frustrated by that. We already had enough people that could have claimed credit for its occurring, including people that had passed away, like my advisor at Caltech who committed suicide, mm. tragically, in the middle of the project. Uh, you know, these people were not in the running necessarily for the Nobel Prize, as I mentioned before. And so, in other words, I would have preferred to be more magnanimous were I in charge and include everybody. Uh, and that's that's the problem. See, what happens is I talk to all these laureates, and, and let me get let me ask you what you would do. You know, I'm talking to all these laureates, and and they and I say, what's the best part of winning the Nobel Prize, and what's the worst part about winning the Nobel Prize? So a lot of times they'll say the best part is that you know you you basically have social calendars filled forever. People think everything you have to say is important that you're really listened to. Um, the worst part is that you know you're kind of at the mercy of you know like you make a mistake and people are gunning to take you down. I just did an interview. Uh, I don't think they'll watch this, but with this guy Frank Wilczek. And who won the Nobel Prize in 2004 after waiting 31 years from his graduate school days to win it. And this other guy, Leonard Mladenow, who wrote a bunch of books with Stephen Hawking. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I've read some books by him. Yeah, he wrote he won, The Drunkard's Walk. I arranged this conversation between Frank Wilczek, who's got a new book coming out in January, who he should have on the show. He's just a brilliant, uh, generous person. So he won the Nobel Prize for the stuff he did in graduate school that he had to wait for. Um, this guy, Leonard Malat now, I arrange it uh, because uh, he and I, he had worked with um, with Stephen Hawking and he was like an atheist. He's a Jewish guy, but he's atheist. And then it was me, who's a Jewish you know, practitioner, practicing agnostic, as we've talked about on the series. And then there was uh, Deepak Chopra. Uh, so Deepak hosted us <clears throat> in front of 35 million of his audience. <laughs> so I was like, this will sell books for Frank. I, I want to do it because I love this guy, Frank Wilczek, who's a, He's kind of an agnostic slash believing Catholic. And so I thought it'd be interesting. I have a Jewish atheist. I don't know what Deepak is. I actually, I don't know. The more I read by him, because he's coming on my show on Monday, which is another thing uh -huh. I want to ask you about. He writes all these books about, you know, like the universe and 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 how we can be, you know, metahuman. Yeah, you know, I've, I've actually had his brother on the on my show. Oh, really? I didn't his know brother's he a, 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 a he's a works at Harvard Medical School, and he wrote about anti aging. Yeah, Deepak's a medical doctor, and and he writes all these things. Yeah, uh, so the actual the real reason was Deepak. His new book has some elements about debating. Remember, I was having all these uh, articles and stuff that I wrote over the fall during the presidential debate about how politicians should learn from scientists about debating. So we were going to debate like the existence of God with Leonard Mladenow, Deepak Chopra, and Frank Wilczek, the winner of the Nobel Prize. But it just like devolved into like this kind of like discussion over whether or not we have free will. Yeah, that whole the whole free will thing is boring because you can't do anything with that knowledge. It doesn't mean anything. Exactly, and you can't prove it either way. You know, it's like, uh, let's say I know what you're gonna do. So I'm driving down I-95 to Boca or wherever, you know, to see somebody. And then uh, you're driving north, and I'm driving south. You know, on the same freeway. I see there's a huge accident on the way. I know you're going to be delayed. Like, I have information now that you don't have. Let's say, you know, there's this before Waze or whatever. You know, so I know you have no free will. You are going to be stuck. You're not going to be able to do anything. I have entropy. I have knowledge of your situation, but I have no ability to actually do anything with that knowledge. And so what this guy Milan now is, he believes in strong determinism. So he believes that, like, if you could have knowledge 
of the wave function of the universe, which you and I are going to talk about. Uh, that has to do with a, a theory attributed to John Wheeler, who is the teacher of Richard Feynman and, and many other people, um, that you could actually know everything. Not, 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 not that it's like quantum chaos or whatever, but he believes if you could know the wave function, you could actually predict all events. They're all predetermined. And then Frank's saying, well, you couldn't hold somebody guilty of committing murder. And I'm just like, you know, can we just cite like Rene Descartes, you know, from 1642? Yeah, I and feel just like move on. when I was a freshman in college, yeah. we argued that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but but it, it, it's interesting because, you know, these guys, it's, it's, everybody has their lane. So you, in your lane, you win the Nobel Prize. Yeah. But in other lanes, you could be smart and intelligent like anybody else, but you're not going to be like the best in the world. So that that's the whole problem, I think, with being great at one thing is that people assume you're great at everything else. And it's just, it's totally not true. It's almost never true. It's called the halo effect. Like when I yeah. think James is like this amazing, you know, chess player uh, and that he'll be good at podcasting, it just turns out to be a complete, no, no, yes. no, no, but <laughs> Einstein was asked to be the first president of Israel. Like that yeah. makes no sense. Like, oh, why? Well, because he knows about quantum physics. Uh, give me a break. It, he had they had like really disastrous, you know, knowledge or you know hopes for humanity. He didn't believe there should be any nations. Like there shouldn't be any whatsoever. Uh, it was a it was a pacifist primarily, um, except in certain circumstances. And you know he picked and, choo and chose. But yeah, I mean, how would you have handled it? Let's say I'm I'm like looking at them because we're on Zoom because X Caster doesn't exist yet. Um, yes, soon, <laughs> soon. I can't wait to be the. Uh, we, we keep we keep adding more features. I know, I know. I can't wait. I'm gonna be the uh, Delta tester, or the Zeta tester. Uh, yes. At this rate. Uh, but anyway, getting uh, to this. So let's say you're watching these guys fighting, and I'm just like, I can't even get a word in edgewise. And then I would have, I would have interrupted just like I did just now, and I would have said, um, "Hey, can we just take two steps back? Here's the title of the conference. And, and look, this is a debate strategy. You kind of have to label what's happening. Like mm -hmm. if someone, if someone makes a false equivalence between the Big Bang theory and free will." you have to say, look, are we debating free will or are we debating the Big Bang? Mm -hmm. And you have to call out the false equivalents. When I had a debate uh, about whether or not one should vote, and someone said, you know, if you, you know, right now in this election, it's all about racism, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I said, wait a second, are we debating the 250-year-old tradition of voting <laughs> or are we debating racism? Because I'm happy to debate racism, but I thought the topic was voting. And so it kind of set things back on track. Right. Yeah, you have to keep control of it when they try to reframe it. But I feel like just getting back to the Nobel aspect of it, when you're a Nobel Prize winner, it's kind of also like that never dying, you know, pill situation because the only thing that can happen is your reputation could be uh, be smirched like some upstart Oh, James Altucher wants to get famous on Instagram for taking down, you know, this this hotshot physicist who thinks he knows what he's talking about about whatever, and like, or you know, like I used to joke I could beat Michael Jordan or something, you know, in a game of pickup basketball that I designed. You know, I could beat it. You know, the game horse. Yeah. So me and my kids play anti-disestablishmentarianism, and I have <laughs> good stamina, so I can outlast most. So, so there's only only one way for a Nobel Prize winner to go, but down. So they become very. Um, protective. And I think it leads to a little bit stifling. And I'm learning that in my book, you know, they don't want to be as, uh, they want to be perceived as the elder statesman. And maybe that's why they don't want to come on the show or something. I mean, I've had nine or 10 of them already, and I'm sure I'm going to get more. You know, most people in general, like most, you know, 
let's say famous people, right? A Nobel Prize winner counts as famous. Most people say no to going on a podcast. It's like a, you know, 30% hit, hit rate if you're great. And for me, I get about a 20% hit rate. Mm. So if, if even that, like if I, but I, I go for big asks, like I'll ask, you know, Obama or Trump. So, you know, most people say no. Yeah. Yeah. Like who would be next year, like the kind of person that you'd want to get besides those people? I mean, obviously the people that have already rejected you is probably not a great chance of them having a change. I don't know. You know, I like more of these topic-based ones, like what you and I are doing with the, how the universe began. I'm, I'm starting to move more towards series. Uh, yeah. Just conversations too, rather than, Oh, you wrote a book about flowers. How did you get interested in flowers? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I once saw a, a podcast where the interviewer was specifically like asking bad questions. Like he was asking a writer. So, um, I've always wanted to ask you this, where do you get your ideas? And <laughs> <laughs> that's, just, just like inane questions. Right. I mean, do you ever get like jealous? You know, oh, well, I mean, forget about Obama and Trump. I mean, that's just maybe yeah, whenever I go, Whenever I go into a bookstore, I, I immediately see all the best-selling books and like that person, that person, that person's been in my pockets, but that person, that person, that person yeah. said no. And they went on XYZ podcast <laughs> instead. I always call it the missing tooth syndrome. Remember like when you were a kid and you lost a tooth, and then where was your tongue? Your tongue would just like, keep going to that hole. But you know, there's 31 other teeth in there. Like your tongue could be visiting, but because you, you know, it's uh, something different, you're going to always know. It. Like people that have are bald, every time they go into a room, they're going to look at you and say, you know, where did you get that? You know, they'll be jealous of that. Like, why does he have a great head of hair? So, you know, it is the yeah missing tooth syndrome. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm 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 really having fun with the interviews. I like the idea of of the series. Like now, I kind of like can retroactively convert my past guests into thematic uh, units. So I had on all these people talking about aliens. Well, you might have heard recently there was a claim detection of a signal from this closest star system to the Earth called Proxima Centauri. So I just called up this woman who was the inspiration. She's a fellow Cornell graduate, Jill Tarter, and she was the inspiration for Carl Sagan, when he oh, was also a Cornell professor, who wrote uh, who wrote the book um, Contact, which featured a movie based uh, featuring Jodie Foster. So yeah. the character played by Jodie Foster is based on my real life colleague Jill Tarter, and so I had her on the show to talk about this signal made by kind of a rival, semi-rival group. So it got just like blew up. It was like ten thousand views in less than a day, or a couple days. And, uh, you know, I'm just having fun. But then I realized, hmm, I've interviewed like 10 people and asked them about aliens. Like I could put it all into like, you know, into the impossible alien edition, you know, or, or, or are we alone edition? And uh, Yeah, no, there's a, there's definitely a book there. Like what do really smart people think about UFOs? <laughs> Something like that. So, well, what, what did she say? Is it a real signal? She doesn't think it is. She thinks it was premature that they that they announced it. They shouldn't have done is it, it. Is it definitely from Proxima Centauri? They seem to think it's either from that direction or it could be a microwave oven. You know, it's like there are many different uh, you know, opportunities for it. It's, it's more like we haven't seen it repeat, but it was there. And there's a famous example of that in the 1970s. You know, there was a signal that was huge from some local star system and then, you know, it never repeated. So why would they turn it on just for that time? But but there's actually a very fascinating book by a Harvard professor. He's actually the chairman of the Harvard Astronomy Department. And he wrote a book about this um, object that visited the solar system from outside the solar system. All we know for sure is it didn't come from our solar system. Whether it was natural or not, 
we don't know definitively, but he makes a claim in his book definitively that the odds are overwhelming that it was an extraterrestrial spacecraft or probe or solar sail cruising between star systems meant to, you know, for some purpose, but created by an extraterrestrial intelligence. So, so wait, what? This was a real thing that happened? Yeah, this object called Oumuamua came by the Earth. It came in at such a rate and on such a trajectory that it wasn't bound gravitationally in an orbit. So imagine, you know, if you just all of a sudden gave the Earth, you know, a tremendous velocity, half the speed of light, it's never going to come back to orbit the sun again. This mm. thing was moving, you know, so rapidly that it was not from within our solar system and it must have been traveling for, you know, millions or billions of years from somewhere else. And so do, uh, do objects regularly uh, go through our solar system or was this a yeah. special one? No, many of them do, but they don't have, he claims this one is completely special. So the most common things are comets. Comets, asteroids sometimes go through. Uh, we know that they can, some of them can get, no, so there's a cloud of over a trillion icy bodies called the Oort cloud at the edge of our solar system, well beyond the orbit of Pluto. And past that region is is kind of interstellar space. You're almost not closer, you're closer to other stars than our sun. And so uh, those objects are where comets come from, like Halley's Comet and the comet Neowise that was appearing this year, all sorts of things. So those objects do come from outside of the inner solar system, but then other stars have a trillion objects around them too. The sun is in orbit around our galaxy's center. That's actually something that cosmologists have known about for 80 years or something like that. How long do you think it takes to get around the galactic center for the sun at the distance the earth is located, the sun is located? I'm going to say uh, at least 10 million years. Yeah, you're right. It's at least 10 million. It's about 250 million years. So that means in uh, just since the earth was created, the sun has gone around the center of the galaxy 16 times. And so, you know, when it goes around, it's not like other stars aren't doing, they're all doing the same thing, but their orbits aren't perfectly like on a, on a CD player. They're, they're you know, they, they perturb each other. So sometimes our sun got closer to our nearest star or whatever, and just enough to, so that their Oort clouds bumped, which is another thing that sounds dirty. Like uh, in astronomy, there's a lot of them. There's, you know, panspermia, we talked about that. Uh, we talked about syllogisms. Uh, we talked about analemmas and syzygies. Anyway, all these Scrabble words for you to use. If you ever yes. get syzygy, James, I want you to like just scream out in, in pleasure, in like orgiastic pleasure. Syzygy would be hard. There's only, uh, what is it? There's like one Z or two Zs in the Scrabble <laughs> set. So. You know better than I do. Yeah, you know all those two-letter words. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically 
you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. So how did this guy, why did this guy think definitively that this one object out of so many that come through the solar system, why did he think that this was definitely from an alien life? So I'm like halfway through his book, But what he's saying now is that it has a shape that's disc-shaped. It's not shaped like the meteorite that I sent you, you know, where it's like this long, thin, obloid, like a tubular shaped. He claims it's more like a disc, like floating through space like a pancake, and that it's doing something that no other object of celestial origin can do, in that he claims that as it went around the sun, it changed its trajectory like almost as if it was commanded to or programmed to. And no other object has been seen to do that. It also, so what he believes it is, is a solar sail. He believes it's some kind of radiation capturing object. Like many people have proposed these uh, throughout the years, actually Carl Sagan, and we've actually deployed one. It's called a solar sail. The Planetary Society, one of my friends, Matt Kaplan from San Diego, is affiliated with them. Uh, He's a big podcaster for what's called the Planetary Radio. It's a great podcast, too. Anyway, that object uh, was put into space more like a demonstration of feasibility. It's like a couple of millimeters thick. It unfolds in space, and then it goes cruising around the, the solar system based purely on the pressure from photons from the sun. So it's always going to move away from the sun. So he claims the properties of this thing, based on 10 days worth of data, that's it are sufficient to explain it by, or the most natural explanation, according to Avi Loeb, he's the professor at Harvard, is that it's a solar sail. And wait, uh, how can he tell that it was a disc? How could he tell, like, you know, it's probably a small object. How could, could we see it that close? So we didn't actually take a picture of it. So there's only like artist conceptions of it. But it, it did, it has a couple of properties. So it has its reflectance, like how shiny it is. It's mm-hmm. also called its albedo. This is a curious question for you. So is the moon, James, do you think when you see the full moon tonight, and tonight's a full moon or pretty close to it, when you go out and look at the moon, how much of the light from the sun do you think the moon reflects? Is it like a mirror reflects 100% and a black hole reflects 0%? What do you think it is? Uh, I'm going to say like 1%. Mm-mm, that's pretty good. Um, no, it's about 10%, but you're, you're not far off. It's actually as reflective as concrete. 
So if you shine like light on concrete, about 10% of the photons come back to you. This object is much different than that. They measured its reflectance, looking at the sunlight that was recorded. They measured its spectrum. What he, The reason he thinks it's a solar sail is they have dimensions for it, uh, and the dimensions are consistent with an object about the size of a football field, but with the density of, like, tissue paper, meaning that um, it, it's, like, extremely wide. It's reflective. It's robust you know, there's no wind in space, but there's solar wind as pressure from the sun and particles from the sun and other stars. And he thinks it was accelerated from a parent star that it came from using lasers. So that, that's what we hope to do. Uh, and actually, it's it's related to like ways the universe or our personal universe, the Earth, could end. So asteroids traveling around the solar system could impact the Earth and bring life to an end, as the dinosaurs experienced. You know, they didn't have a very good space program. And so they couldn't detect it. So we're now thinking about two things. One is nudging asteroids before they come to Earth. You don't want to do the Bruce Willis thing and like land on them and let's nuke the shit out of this, you know, blow it up. Because that just makes like this into like the, you know, like a billion little uh, part, each one consistent with killing the whole Earth. So one thing is to have a little nudge, but have it be like uh, igniting, slow burning the asteroid or the comet so that it acts like there's a little rocket so every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So if you like boil stuff off the surface of the comet as it outgasses, well, that's what's called out. It's like a miniature rocket. And if you do that far enough away when it's beyond the orbit of Neptune, that will deflect it potentially away from a life-altering impact possibility on Earth. So we're working on, on developing lasers. The best lasers, though, where would you like to put them? You'd like to put them in space. And so you'd like to launch a laser into space. Now you've got something that can provide momentum to incoming objects, but it can also do the opposite. It can push objects away from the solar system. Well, how, why is it as dense as toilet paper, this object that he discovered? Like, how does he know, how do they know density? So they can measure its its mass and they can measure its volume and then they can say what that's consistent with. So that's uh, Archimedes, you know, or, um, you know, kind of putting a king's crown in a bathtub and seeing how much volume it has. But how do you measure that in space, though? Because you can't see how much you're... From its orbit, you know, you know the gravitational force of the sun. You know, uh, you know how fast it's changing. You know, it's it's. you can measure properties of its size using infrared light, for example. You can't... But since it changed trajectory, it's not just being controlled by gravity. Well, so yeah, there was like an event where it changed. And that happens with comets, too. As they come close to the sun, you ever seen the tail of a comet? It's pushing out material... And it's changing its orbit. So the same thing, we can calculate the orbit of, of comets, even though they're shooting out junk. Like ha- Edmund Halley predicted the return of Halley's Comet, what we call now Halley's Comet, in 1776 or something. So mm-hmm. back then, the orbital dynamics were knowable, at least, uh, you know, and so we could calculate what its mass is based on how fast it's moving using, you know, Kepler's laws and, and other uh, celestial mechanics. So what do you think? Do you, do you think it's, do you believe this guy? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. Uh, I think it's, uh, I still have questions, you know, that I want answered. I feel like, so there's another backstory behind this particular guy. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of this guy, Yuri Milner. Yeah, he's, uh, he, he started um, that, that uh, a long time ago. It was like thir- almost 30 years ago, 25 years ago, that uh, ICQ. Yeah. So he became this, you know, multi-billionaire, buddy-buddy with a lot of people in the Bay Area. And they started this initiative called the Breakthrough initiative or they award these prizes breakthrough prizes that are worth 10 times as much potentially as a nobel prize so they're worth you know several million dollars per person and they give away those prizes in science and technology and so forth 
But they also created two different projects, one for radio telescopes to listen for emission from potential intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. And that's the project that discovered or claimed that it's discovery for the signal that this woman, Jill Tarter, was relatively dismissive of. So they were using a telescope in Australia, and they heard this signal, and that was one of the projects that Yuri Milner funded. Another project that he funded gives prizes to people that, like, save lives and and cure disease. So that just went to people um, who cured smallpox, this institute called the Future of Life Institute. Another thing they're doing is called Starshot. So they have an initiative which was led by the same professor, Avi Loeb, to send billions of little cell phone-like chips with cameras and radio transmitters, launch them to Proxima Centauri, which happens to be the star that we claim that we heard uh, signals from, that will get there in Yuri Milner's lifetime. So they have to get to Proxima Centauri in less than 25 years, take you know, selfies, Instagram shots of Proxima Centauri, the planet that's around Proxima Centauri, and beam those back, which will take four years traveling at the speed of light, uh, to the Earth and, you know, image another planetary and solar system for the first time. So, so this same guy is involved with technology on Earth that would kind of be the reverse of this object that he claims it came from outside the Earth. So, it's a little. It sounds a little to me like confirmation bias. Like he really wants to see it. Right. So he to a hammer, everything's a nail. That's exactly. He says that in the book. He, he's funny. He's he's uh, he's like I don't like publicity. This guy's like super. In fact, when Bicep made the announcement at Harvard, he was the one who opened the press conference to the world because it was like so clear we're all going to win. There we're going to win Nobel prizes. At least the Harvard team, you know, whatever. And so he was the one that introduced it to the world and and. Uh, He's not shy. He's Israeli. Uh, he's born in Israel. Very, very productive. But I do think that he's, you know, kind of what he's doing, which I'm going to kind of gently push back on him about, is he's saying, like, science has invested so much money on string theory, on the multiverse, you know, all these things you and I are talking about. And yet there's zero evidence that they are true or correct. And there's worse, he thinks, and I have reason to believe it, that we may never have evidence because it might be fundamentally unprovable uh, that the universe has a invisible, infinite number of invisible counterparts called the multiverse, or that string theory, which posits that there are actually 10 dimensions of space-time, but that exists. And yet, there's departments of people like that. And he says there's only like two people that have ever gotten a PhD uh, that study extraterrestrial communication or, or these kind of probes that could come. Like, in the orthodox physics world, it's very unusual. There aren't Actually, one person happens to be here in UC San Diego, my colleague Shelley Wright. She studies optical light from potential civilizations. But uh, besides that, it's very rare that people get PhDs to study this. And yet, there are tons of people that get every year PhDs in string theory. So here's this chairman of the astronomy department at Harvard University <laughs> saying that like physics is so in love with these wild ideas that have zero chance, in his opinion, and many others, of being ever proven wrong, let alone proven right. And here's this thing that has an o- that's an object that, you know, he claims has a lot more evidence that it's extraterrestrial and nobody's interested in it till now. Yeah, but but it's interesting because what is interesting is interesting. So you, there's been so many hoaxes around the concept of UFOs and there's basically been nothing, like UFOs is, some, is a, the type of thing where 
it's either real or it isn't. String theory, you're never going to be able to prove it, but it's this nice mathematical way of unifying quantum mechanics and classical physics. So it's it seems like it's worth studying, even though there's no experiments to really figure out if it exists. Yeah. It might lead to other discoveries about how to unify these two things. Aren't strings kind of a way to even break down further, like gravitons and photons and all these things that you know make it into one you know, quarks make it into all one package now. Everything's made up of strings. Yeah, that's right. So the the object of string theory is to explain the nature of gravity. See, gravity is unusual, and we haven't discussed this. So there's four forces of nature that we've talked about. There's a strong nuclear force. You ever wonder, like, there's helium on the periodic table, and do you know what that's made of? What its chemical, you know, kind of composition is, atomic composition is? Couple couple protons. Yeah, a couple, couple protons. Very good. And you know why it's called helium? No. It was discovered on the sun. Uh, uh, how did they discover it on the sun? Well, they went there at night. Come on, you made that too easy for me. Uh, <laughs> so uh, they discovered it from the spectrum of light from the sun that it was consistent with being like hydrogen, which has a single proton, a single electron but having extra mass effectively and extra charge. So it had two electrons instead of one because it's electrically neutral, even in regions on the sun. Different transitions that it makes can make it ionized. So helium has two protons and two neutrons. Opposites attract, right? Uh, so hydrogen has two protons. How do you get two like charges to stick together? They repel each other, right? You can learn two things. There must be not held together by electrical forces, right? That's not sufficient to explain why they're bound together. And the second thing you must surmise is there's some other force, non-electrical, non-magnetic even, that's pulling them together, that's keeping them together. And that force has to be stronger than the electrostatic repulsion between two charges that are equal. Mm -hmm. So that force we call the strong nuclear force. And it's a force that interacts between the quarks that make up protons and neutrons. So even though there's a proton and a proton, the proton is made up of two different types of quarks that have an opposite attraction to one another. Does that make sense? Yeah, so the strong nuclear force overrides, uh, what's the weak nuclear force again? I forget. So the weak nuclear force is what's associated with radioactive decay. So uh, okay. if you take a proton, how long do you think you have to wait before the proton disintegrates into heat, light, or heat, or you know fission, or whatever? How long do you think you'd have to wait? Billions of years. Yeah, try like a trillion, trillion years or something like that. It's it's right. larger that you know by a trillion than the age of the universe. But 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 things like uranium and plutonium do decay pretty That's quickly because right. they're not only made of protons. So uh, they're made of neutrons. So if you take a neutron and you leave it out in your uh, you know you leave it on uh, in a, in a in your laboratory, it will decay in about seven you know seven minutes. So it'll spontaneously erupt into electron, a proton, and what's called a neutrino, in this case, an antineutrino. And that's called radioactive beta decay because they didn't know back in the early 1900s that the radiation that came out was actually little tiny electrons, not just gamma rays or photons or whatever. Um, so that process will emit these particles. That's called the weak force. So that's responsible. That controls when particles decay. And it relates together neutrinos and electrons and this type of instability of atomic nuclei. So that force can be stronger or weaker depending on what scales you're talking about than the electrical force. The key in physics is that the stronger the force, the shorter the range it interacts over. 
Yeah, so we've we've talked about this and how what's the similarity between strong weak and electromagnetism that gravity doesn't have? We don't know for all these different for the strong force, the weak force and electricity and magnetism, they all have a particle counterpart. So they all have either a quark in the case of the strong force, an electron in the case of electricity, neutrinos in the case of the weak force, and other things called W bosons and Z bosons. But the gravity, we don't know what its particle counterpart is. We think it's called a graviton. We think it's a particle of gravity, and that in certain conditions, gravity can act like a particle in addition to acting like a wave, which is kind of weird to think about. But in addition to having very long-range effects like an ocean wave, it could have very short-range effects in high gravitational fields or in extremely high temperatures, as is thought to have existed during the Big Bang, which we're discussing. And so so, so it's a different kind of force, and yet it still has that same property of, you know, the farther it goes, it, it's weaker by the square root of whatever. Yeah. This, it has the same formula as all the other forces, but it's not a force. No, no, gravity is a force. But there, there's this theory that because of its differences and, and, and because of the similarities, one of the theories about the beginning of the universe is that we're in this, you know, multiverse or two multiverses kind of intersected or, or crashed into each other and spun off our universe and gravity is like a force coming from this other universe. Yeah, right. So those are uh, alternative cosmologies that are related to what's called membrane theory or M-theory. Uh, those exist only in very contrived circumstances for which we have no evidence. I've talked to the leading proponents of these theories. Uh, some of them relate to universes uh, which this can actually occur are five-dimensional in other words, they're not even four-dimensional like our universe. It's hard enough for us to comprehend what four-dimensional means. But five-dimensional would mean there's an extra spatial dimension and that gravity, the, the universe of geometrical objects that exist are called brains, B-R-A-N-E. And these brains, as you say, in certain models can come together and collide. And some suggest that that would be, the, um, that would be what ignited the Big Bang, so to speak. Uh, and this has gotten a tremendous amount of attention uh, for, you know, reasons that I think are more kind of elegance or beauty-based rather than actually being, um, you know, accurately describing our universe because we know there are there are four dimensions, not five dimensions. So it's very strange to think about how you could have an extra dimension. And you're postulating that to solve a problem that only exists because you're assuming that the universe has to have the similarity between gravity and, and quantum mechanics in other contexts. In other words, you say to me, uh, I've had this conversation with many of the Nobel Prize winners that come on, you say there have to be gravitational, these gravitons rather, which are the very short wavelength analog of gravitational waves, which my project was looking for, but that's kind of like a radio wave compared to a photon. A radio wave is like a classical object that doesn't need Planck's constant and you don't need the Schrodinger equation to understand it. Uh, you can use Maxwell's equations. Um, similarly, uh, but for gravity, you say, well, gravity has to have a graviton. And because of that, now we have to go and add an extra dimension. And now we have to add uh, these certain properties where things collide. And then that gravity can percolate between these different, different dimensions. But in one dimension, they go a really long way around. And that's why gravity d decreases by the inverse square law. So they're tying all these things together. But the predicate is that gravity must be quantizable. It must be made into a quantum mechanical theory. And I keep pointing out 
there's only two situations in the entirety of the entire universe where such an object may be necessary. One is at the center of a black hole, what's called a singularity, uh, for which my friend Sir Roger Penrose won the Nobel Prize this past year. And number two, it could be at the Big Bang, if the Big Bang had a quantum origin. But neither one of those, A, is observable. Neither one of those is quantifiable. One occurred so long in the past, it's completely obscured. Even by bicep couldn't see it because it doesn't produce gravitational waves until, you know, literally trillions of times longer than this epoch where gravity would be quantum mechanically manifest. And then the black hole is surrounded by what's called an event horizon. Now, some say that there's an object uh, that a black hole, that certain black holes can be uh, free of these event horizons. And those have another dirty name. They're called naked singularities. In other words, a singularity is like a division by zero in space-time. It's putting like some finite amount of matter into an infinitesimal volume of space. That causes a singularity. That's what we think is at the core of a black hole. But nobody's ever been there. And even if you could go there, you can't get out of there and transmit your information, even at the speed of light, because the gravity is too strong and you're shielded by what's called the event horizon. So for those reasons, uh, people think, well, there might be a naked singularity. We have no evidence for, for that. So getting back to my original point, we say we need quantum gravity because gravity is just like the other forces. Uh, but the two situations in, with, in which gravity's quantum mechanical nature would be relevant are both unobservable. So do we need mm-hmm. it or not? If BICEP was able to, if your telescope was able to truly see past the plasma and, and to the Big Bang, would you have been able to detect... Uh, if there was quantum gravity? So this guy, Frank Wilczek, the same guy who won the Nobel Prize that had the debate with Deepak Chopra and Leonard Malad now, and me, uh, he wrote a paper by this very controversial physicist named uh, Lawrence Krauss, who wrote a book called The Physics of Star Trek. I'll just say it's very controversial. Listeners can look him up. Frank and this guy, Lawrence Krauss, postulated that, yes, if our results on BICEP had been confirmed, it would be some of the first evidence of the quantum nature of gravity. I disagreed with that paper, and I I talked to Frank when he was on my show. What do you think about when you when I when I say the words James and I say quantum mechanics? What do you think about like what would what is quantum to you? You don't experience it in a normal day, right? No, I think about something basically infinitely small, smaller, so small that it doesn't follow the normal rules of physics. What we what we all observe is the the observable rules of physics. Those are like yeah, classical everyday laws. Uh, but that's kind of def, you know defining it in terms of what you cannot what you do not observe. But uh, the, I would say like, when I think about what is like the maximally quantum mechanical you know, experience that something can have, it's that matter, like an electron, which is, has a mass and is made of matter, uh, it can diffract. It can interfere with itself. It can go through two slits in what's called a double slit experiment. It can go through, take two paths at once simultaneously, such that if you shoot a beam of electrons at uh, two tiny little narrow slits in a in a screen, the pattern that you get out on the other side of the screen, if you count how many electrons appear in each place, it will take on exactly the same characteristic as if you shot water waves into those two slits. And just as water waves at the beach interfere with each other, they have wave-like properties. So I would say, yes, that energy is quantized in the quantum world and uh, and diffraction and superposition, all sorts of weird, spooky effects can take place. That's the hallmark of quantum mechanics. So I asked Wilczek, I said, to me, proving that gravitational waves are quantum would mean like interfering gravitational waves together. 
not not you know in other words seeing that they go through two paths at once seeing you know that they um that they can interfere with each other um it's showing that they have quantum amounts of energy that's max planck you know when he started the, the father of the quantum revolution 1900 showed that light you know can basically come in these discrete amounts and no more niels bohr showed that you know spectrum of a hydrogen atom only has discrete uh, wavelengths or energy levels. So those are, you can't just turn the knob up as much as you want and get whatever energy or wavelength or color that you want. In other words, if you look at a rainbow, it's actually quantized. It's like a digital rainbow. Uh, but we just can't perceive it, A, because our eyes are classical computers and so forth, uh, but B, the quantum effects get washed out when we uh, aggregate trillions and trillions of electrons and photons together. Right, so so it, it, quantum mechanics can never apply to like big objects. Yeah, so you can actually go in the same direction. You can go um, from the laws of quantum mechanics and predict the path of a baseball thrown from you know from the pitcher's mound, uh, but you can't go the other way. You can't say uh, the each electron, uh, understanding it from classical Newton's laws, F equals m a. You can't get the quantum mechanical behavior from that. So in other words. The quantum mechanical is more fundamental. It subsumes all of the properties, even the classical properties of objects when properly computed. It's actually infinitely difficult to do such a calculation. But in principle, you could derive the laws of classical mechanics for an electron at treating it like a baseball and, and then go on to just subsume and, and superpose trillions and trillions of electrons together to make up the baseball. So could there be anything smaller? Maybe gravity is part of a, maybe there's a third set of laws. Yeah. So like, you know, because right now quarks are the smallest thing, right? That's like the basic building blocks. Yeah. What, what's, what's a quark made out of? Yeah, exactly. So there I think they have to say that, and I've asked, you know, eminent Nobel, you know, people this, and they just say it's elementary. Like that is finally... You know the end of the road, like, like the. But string theorists will say strings are elementary, and they're. Oh, oh sorry, didn't you say that? I thought you said no. Strings. I said quarks. Oh, sorry, I quarks. quarks. No, no, no. Yeah, quarks would be made of strings, according to string theorists. But there's no evidence for string theory. Electrons would be made of it. Gravitons would be made of strings. That's right. So string theory is taken on this dominant role in physics, such that you know tens or hundreds of PhDs every year get their PhD studying string theory or the cosmological implications of string theory, and so forth. And there's a huge industry, and the quantum, you know, black hole relationship, wormholes in string theory, all these things. But I don't know if we could ever show that they're wrong, let alone that they're right. Like, in other words, could we ever interfere a string with itself to show that it is actually this fundamental object that cannot be further subdivided? I don't think that's possible. But see, this is this is it. This is why it's interesting that it's interesting. So, and this is why physics uh, is useful because not that everyone needs to know right now what string theory is, so we can so we can solve COVID. Right. But like the sort of person who can figure that kind of stuff out and get PhDs in it. Let's say you instead you gave him look. We have we're we're here at Google and we have a trillion bits of data coming in every day. What uses can we put it to? That kind of mind, I think, can start to have interesting solutions to that. Because, you know, it takes a lot of creativity to think of whole entire possible universes oh, and yeah. Yeah, you know, I the mean, small parts that make up those universes. The problem, and that's why I want to make this Y Combinator for physics, is that we need more of that. It's it's never been the case you set out and say, hmm, I want to uh, make a device 
that you can carry in your pocket and will allow me to communicate with James 3,000 miles away uh, on demand and send him, you know, butt pictures or whatever, okay? Right? So uh, let me do that. I'm going to do that. Here, I'm going to detect the thermal afterglow of the Big Bang. I'm going to do that because that will lead me directly. And that's exactly what happened. In other words, where was it discovered? In nowhere else other than your ancestral homeland, Jew Nersey. It was discovered in Holmdale, New Jersey. Why was it discovered there? Well, CMB was discovered. Their cosmic microwave background that I study was discovered by Penzias and Wilson in 1965 at Holmdale's antenna because it was a place called Bell Laboratories. What did Bell Labs go on to do? Well, they invented the cell phone uh, in 1971. Uh, and the, and the question is, why was that related? Well, what do astronomers do? We look for extremely faint objects that require tremendous amounts of amplification at, at low noise levels so that you don't overwhelm the gain. Like Jay is always telling you, turn down your gain, James, and turn down your gain. But you have to have a clean amplification. That's why Jay pays so much. It makes me pay so much when I buy his recommendations, like an SSL 2 plus that he got me for Hanukkah or I got myself for Hanukkah. Anyway, getting back to this, <laughs> it's very hard to have high gain and low noise. But you need that when you're trying to detect cosmological signals, astrophysical signals. These people... We're working on detectors for astronomical purposes. And back then, Bell Labs realized that it's useful to have people around to study basic things that have no practical import, like solving COVID back then or Spanish flu or whatever it was. And so they invented these amplifiers, antennas, a transistor was invented there, all sorts of things. But the path is circuitous to get to actually a $60 trillion industry, whatever cell phones are, transistors are. And, you know, Eric Weinstein, our mutual friend, he says, well, you know, uh, physicists are stupid. You guys should tax each email because where did email or where did the World Wide Web come from? That protocol came from CERN, the a European a Large Hadron Collider's home location where the Higgs boson was discovered. Why was it discovered there? Why was uh, the HTML and, and the World Wide Web uh, protocols invented? Well, physicists need to share tremendous amounts of data on networks that you know are not efficient if they're dispersive. And so that protocol is very efficient. Error correct, blah, blah, blah. So there's a value in it. And, but... I think if you set out and say, well, I really want to invent time travel and, you know, uh, because I want to have better VR or whatever, you're not going to do it. And it's going to come out of people like you just mentioned that are thinking extremely abstractly, but they're not kooks. They're not crazies. And, you know, that that's, that is worth doing. And I feel like as a society, I think it would be bad if we taxed each email or taxed each, you know, web or semiconductor instruction. Uh, but, you know, are there other ways to do it that don't rely on the beneficence of Jim Simons or Yuri Milner or whoever? Maybe like a Y Combinator, you know, what? maybe these like moonshots really do deserve some kind of self-sustaining source of, of, of funding so that, you know, if nothing else, the human mind is engaged in this particular way. Well, I wonder if you can prove the case by finding one example where you take a strong physicist, give, a, give them a hard problem and the ability and the team to to solve it and execute on it and just see see what results well i think that's happened you know like superconductor because you know why why combinator started because they started um what their i forgot their initial name of their company but um paul graham and uh the kid who made the internet virus in 1988 i forgot his name mm -hmm. now uh they started a, a way to make e-commerce stores very easily and then yahoo bought it and became yahoo stores and that was their first business. And then they 
did a couple more and they invested a couple more and they realized they could systematize it. So they started with one though. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, there have been many of these applications that came out of basic research, like to understand a superconductor, you know, that would later have an implication for, I feel like we're doing it all over again. Like physicists discovered superconductivity over a hundred years ago. It was unexplained until the, you know, 50s and 60s. And then it was demonstrated. Now we're lowering the temperature. It used to be you have to cool it down 454 degrees below zero Fahrenheit uh, to make an object turn into a superconductor where electricity flows without resistance so that you could have lossless transmission of, of electrical power. And, and now we're kind of like doing it again because we invented these superconductors. They're the foundational heartbeat, and we did it with transistors, and physicists never made any money from it. Uh, and then we did it again with with qubits. Like basically those are types of superconducting junctions that I've made in my lab here and, and other people make them. And we're not monetizing it. <laughs> you know, so it's like the same thing's gonna happen. You know, fool me, you know, 85 billion times, shame on me, you know, to that power. Yeah. So I mean, like quantum computing, there's news every day about it now. Yeah. And I mean, so we missed the boat. I mean, now we, it's too late to monetize that. There are already corporations building it. You know, like, would it work? And I'm not saying this like, whatever, I, I don't- no, so Nothing's too late, by the way, in the world of entrepreneurship. Hmm. So everything's made out of a garage. And I mean, look, look at all the companies that everybody said it was too late. I mean, in 2002, every, people said it was too late to start an internet company. Yeah, what did uh, Paul Krugman say? The Nobel, speaking of Nobel Prize winners, that it be as useful as a fax machine or something. <laughs> yeah, and well, even Bill Gates said something like that. So there's, a, it's always people are always saying it's too late, but it's never too late. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I definitely agree. Do you want to uh, take a break and get back to the? Uh, what? How much time do you guys have? Well, we might have to make this an episode okay. and then <laughs> schedule one more. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.